The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. It's our first episode of 2020, Mike. It's pretty crazy. I know. Do you have any uh, New Year's resolutions, Sarah? I, I hate to put you on the spot like that. Yeah, you're really putting me on the spot. I can't say I've ever been a New Year's resolution type person. Yeah. I'm really big about just trying to better yourself through the year. Um, do you? Well, I've got a, a teenage daughter who's going to be getting her driver's learning permit. Are you going to be teaching her? Very soon in the new year. So, uh, well, luckily in New Jersey, they force them to take driver's ed. So I don't have to do most of the teaching. But uh, I, I think my resolution is, is going to be not to have a heart attack <laughs> at, at any time during the new year. That's a good one. Good luck with yeah, that. Yeah. I'll say, I'm going to uh, try my best. No driver's ed in Florida. Oh, yeah. From well, what you I hear about Florida. drivers in Florida. <laughs> that makes a lot of yeah, sense. You, get, you can get away with it. Uh, but Happy New Year to everyone who's listening. You're right. And luckily, we have a guest who's going to predict exactly what's going to happen in the new year to a T, 100% correct rate of predictions, I assume. Is that right, Chris Harvey, head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo? Uh, absolutely. We, we've got it down to a T. Whatever you want to know, we've got the answer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm the shell answer man right now. <laughs> I do. I feel sorry for you guys because you have to make these predictions. Is this like, how much do you sweat these things? When you... uh, sometimes a lot, sometimes very little. Yeah, a- yeah. And sometimes the funny thing is when things work, then people ask you, so what's next? And you say to yourself, well, not really sure, but that's never a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> they demand exactly what's going to happen. I've got to say, I was looking over your predictions from the past year, 2019, and you guys really did do a good job at calling what was a very unusual, uh, unexpected year, I must say. Um, but, sorry, you're not supposed to look at last year's predictions. That's it. They don't like that. No, but 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 they were right. If they were wrong, maybe I wouldn't have brought it up, you know, <laughs> or maybe I would have saved it to the end of the podcast. Wow, but... I appreciate that. <laughs> But let's uh, let's get into this year's. I, uh, I some some eye poppers here. One I think is uh, very provocative. Expect a potential five to ten percent pullback in the first half of twenty twenty. Now, five ten percent pullbacks theoretically should not be that uncommon, but we just uh, have gotten used to not seeing them. What's uh, what's the gist of why you think that could happen? So as we look in the market, there's a lot of things to like. Rates are lower, credit spreads are tighter. The Fed has been accommodative. Um, we've got some sort of resolution with trade and tariff, and sentiment has improved, and it improved greatly. And that's what we don't like. When everything starts turning positive, expectations go higher, it's usually not a great time for equity markets. And with the VIX in and around 12%, you can see things change quickly. Uh, I'll quickly go back to fourth quarter of, of 2018, when the wheels were falling off the cart, the world was going to end. It was a fantastic time to get involved. You had returns that were well into the double digits, um, and you had great opportunity to invest. Here, typically when people are a little bit more, what we would say, greedy, as, as opposed to fearful, 
it's not always a great time. Yeah. And so with expectations so much higher, we're just worried that things can change and change rather quickly. It's that old Buffett trope, you know, what fearful when everyone's greedy and greedy when everyone's fearful. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it seems to play out again and again. It's one of those cliches that keeps coming back for a reason. Um, I think the phrase is buying when you can, not when you have to, and selling when you can, not when you have right. to. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies here. So also fitting into that correction call potentially coming within the beginning of 2020, I also saw... You mentioned liquidity and the Fed's balance sheet. I saw a statistic recently that if the Fed's balance sheet continues to grow at the pace we've been seeing it grow at, it will be at a new record by May. Is it going to be very difficult, once again, for the Fed to try to wean investors off of this liquidity? I think that's a great question. And we've been saying, at what point does the Fed stop intervening? And you're right about the the massive amount of liquidity in the marketplace, whether it's um, from the Fed or whether it's from the credit market. If we look a half a, by the end of it or by the end of, I think, first quarter, we'll have the balance sheet grown by a half a trillion dollars. Interestingly, what, what does that do? Well, that, that shortens the duration of the balance sheet, which is good because what we've seen is the curve is starting to steepen. That's a very positive economic signal. But at some point, we have to let the economy, we'll have to let the markets stand on their own, and we need we need for more diversification or we need things to be really priced more appropriately. And that's the issue we're also having is, is everything is, is fantastic. Everything's great. We need a lot more differentiation. Uh, another thing that caught my eye in a, a recent note of yours, downgrading uh, semiconductor stocks. And I can't, Sarah, I can't tell you how many TV hits I've done this year where someone's been like, why are semiconductor stocks so doing so well? And, you know, the, the sort of stock answer has been, well, it's the next big thing of 5G, Internet of Things, the, the cloud is still has to be built out. But I've always, you know, wanted to add sort of that Trumpian uh, catchphrase. We'll, we'll see what happens, you know, because it does seem I mean, earnings for semis this year were pretty abysmal. Um, and there it's crazy to see this rally in them. What is your uh, main rationale for, for getting a little cautious on semis? So. In 2019, we wanted to add cyclicality to the portfolio. We want to do it in a stepwise fashion. So we came into the year overweight cap goods, we upgraded the semis, and then ultimately we, we went overweight the banks. Everything worked quite well, actually I think too well. And, and so we downgraded the semis for three reasons. It was macro, it was sentiment, and it was relative performance. And, and working backwards, relative performance has been fantastic. It, it really has been a fantastic year. The semi, Some of the semi indices are up 50%. The second thing is sentiment, to your point, sentiment has turned dramatically. You had everyone saying that the cycle or the bottom of the cycle won't be for another 12 or 24 months. Turns out it was a lot sooner. Maybe we have a different calendar than most people. And the last thing is from a macro point of view, as we go into and look into 2020, from a portfolio point of view, we want to start laying off a little bit of risk. We think that the cyclicality that we told you to buy, we want to start harvesting at this point in time. And the move is just exceptional at this juncture. And does it all relate to the trade situation at all? I know uh, something else you've written is that that phase two could be elusive. I mean, I'll point out phase one still is kind of elusive. <laughs> uh, it's not quite on the finish line yeah. there. But um, it will uh, sort of stumbling blocks on the way to right. phase two be as big of a deal as uh, stumbling blocks uh, in phase one? And and it, it, does semis play a role in, in right. that uh, at all? So So the first thing I would say is, if this was your first day on the job and people said, hey, what did trading tariff do to the semiconductors? You would have said it really helped them, right? right? True. Which is which is odd. Right. So now that we've had the semi, we have some sort of certainty, and I agree with you, we're not 100% certain what phase one actually is. 
our, our view on phase two is you're not going to see a phase two anytime soon. And so we will get a lot of bumps and we will get a lot of fits and starts with regard to it. If you look at what the Chinese are doing or what they're not doing, there's no behavioral change. They don't want it. They, they've shown you no indication that they want to change. And, and at the end of the day, I think phase one was, okay, we'll get something on the table, something moderate or, or small. You claim victory, we'll claim victory, and then we'll move on. And that's where we are right now. With that said, do you think the improvement that we have had with the quote unquote elusive phase one trade deal right now was enough to really lift CEO confidence again, potentially lead to an uptick in CapEx spending? Because if now all of a sudden we're talking about phase two, what's the enforcement mechanism maybe going to be? Is it possible tariffs go back into effect again? In a way, are we just in this circle where what we did see in 2019, where we saw a bit of a pause on business spending plans just continue through? 2020. So a couple thoughts, and I'll be a little bit all over the place. So we don't think trade and tariff did that much to the economy. It did slow things down. But what it really did when we look at earnings, when we look at stocks, the word, the phrase we heard time and time again, uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. So now we have some sort of certainty. That does help planning. That does help people Um, maybe be a little bit more aggressive in their investment pattern. So at the margin, I think it is better. But is it a ton better? No, not really. There's not a ton of pent-up demand. It wasn't as if we just went through some major recession. We didn't. We had a moderate slowdown. And so what we should see on the flip side is something to improve on a moderate fashion. Nothing more than that. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Here's a line I love in your outlook. Uh, Banks possibly to become the new low volatility trade. Boy, if you had said that <laughs> 10 years ago, I'd, I'd like to see the reaction. But I mean, is this you know a function of just the capital return story at banks that um, why would they crash when you know you know the dividends are coming, you know the buybacks are coming, the Fed's kind of you know easing off a little bit on those stress tests. You know that uh, th- those capital plans are, are getting maybe a little bit easier of a look, right? So I, I hate to use this phrase, but this late in the cycle, because we've been this late in the cycle for a very long time, yeah. typically banks' balance sheets are upside down, backwards, and, and can be rather toxic. Uh, additional, In addition, they don't always do all that smart M&A activity. They've been regulated out of a lot of these issues. Yeah. And so banks' balance sheets are actually quite good. One of the things that we saw in third quarter, so we upgraded banks in September of 19. 
Um, a lot of people said, hey, Chris, we like a lot of your calls, but this, you want to rethink this. You know? <laughs> yeah. People are still shell-shocked about uh, financial stocks, I feel like. I mean, look, it, it was just December that the S&P Financials finally reclaimed right. that 07 record. Right. That's remarkable to me. It, it is remarkable. And, and the bank industry group still has it, which is also yeah. pretty remarkable. Yeah. But the, the pushback at that point in time is, is Chris, credit costs are going to go up. Chris, you really don't understand anything about, about net interest margins or the curve. It's just going to be horrific. <laughs> and, and what I said is you're, you're really not appreciating what's changed, how the fundamentals have changed, how lower risk, how much more diversified they are. And then we got third quarter numbers and everyone's like, ooh, maybe you were right. <laughs> <laughs> and so now you're starting, the, the run-up that we've seen has been very aggressive. And, and we do like banks, we like them strategically longer term. And, and to your point, we can also see multiple expansion as people realize these are lower risk profile type companies. And when we talk about banks and banks being low volume, it's really the larger cap banks, not so much the regional and the smaller cap banks. And, and so we expect longer term, but boy, you're right. They've had a heck of a run over the last couple of months. Yeah. But I mean, you think about how long were they trading below, a lot of big banks were trading below book value for yeah. Pete's sake. I mean, that's, it's remarkable. They, they were hated. And, and when we, we did the upgrade, there was a lot of pushback. A lot of the fundamental players just said, this isn't going to work. And, and even if you're right, the market's not going to price it correctly, or it's mm-hmm. not going to price the, the belief that they are, are lower risk profile. And what we said is we're seeing a lot of money go into these quant funds. We're seeing a lot of money go into low volatility funds. They will be your your uh, marginal driver return or your marginal driver price. And so far, that, that's been more right than wrong. Is it partially sort of the moving target of regulations too? I mean, banks, obviously, like yeah. you said, they've kind of been whipped into shape after the crisis. Now it seems like all the scorn in Washington is going in the other direction towards, uh, you know, the big fang stocks, the, your, your social media and mm-hmm. your internet stocks. Is that part of the, the story there? So uh, on regulation, one of the things we were saying, one of the things in our recent note has been that we think that tech will be the new healthcare. It's a pretty so, scary line. It, it, it is scary. <laughs> I mean, just considering how, how important tech has been to the rally and right. the underperformance that we've seen recently in healthcare due to talks of right. regulation and heading into the election. And, and now I don't want to say it's doom and gloom, but you're going to have some bipartisanship, which is very unusual in Washington because both sides, and you can see it already, are talking uh, about tech and issues, whether it's privacy or, or what have you. We have the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act coming into effect next year, and, and it's going to be on the forefront. And we do worry that it's going to put a fair amount of volatility into the names. And people are always in election year looking at healthcare. But w- w- again, what I don't think, what may surprise people is the amount of rhetoric in and around some of these tech companies, which uh, in some cases isn't fair, in some cases may be fair. When you say tech, do you actually mean tech as in it would be classified by the gig sectors or more so you can think of it broader as FANG and, and the internet companies as well? So um, when we talk about tech, it is the broader indices, but obviously there are going to be certain companies and certain subsectors that are more in the focus of the regulators, whether it's on the internet side, the ones that have a little bit more pricing or a little bit more information on, on your background as opposed to, say, a semiconductor. Um, so the things that we worry about are more the hardware and, and some of your portals, uh, if you will. But overall, it, if it affects one area, it should affect all areas to some degree. Is there a chance of uh, healthcare being the new healthcare too? I mean, I, I, you know, I was watching some of these democratic debates, and I guess the difference is that risk is to a large degree priced in already. Um, is it? it, it that. Again, great, great question. <laughs> so uh, bigger picture, what we think is political risk, we don't think it's really priced in at this juncture because if you think about it, sentiment is so good, everything's so great. 
Um, if we look at the price action in some of the healthcare spaces with the HMOs or some of the providers, you saw this big sell-off um, when we had Medicare for All first uh, bandied about. Now there's been a massive snapback in it. And, and that's not going to go away. At some point, the Democrats are going to get some momentum. This will come back to some degree. And I do think you're right. Healthcare will be healthcare and, and there will be some pressure on it. But ultimately, the valuations look pretty attractive to us. And, and you probably want to get aggressive on, on those sell-offs. I want to get back to the low vol trade, which you had mentioned before. Where do you guys actually stand on that broader low vol trade? Because we just saw it grow in such popularity this year. <laughs> and now we hear a couple people coming out saying, look, this has gone too far. We're going to see right. reversal. And you had pounded the table a while back right. on the trade. So where do you guys stand now? So, again, b- bigger picture, we've liked uh, low volatility, the low volatility sector, for, and we've been writing about it for the last 10 years. Uh, we got very aggressive in the summer of 2000, I believe it was 2018. Um, but in the summer of 2019, what we're saying is it's now pricing in a recession. And from a tactical point of view, we wanted to fade that. We want to fade a lot of your bond proxies, especially when the tenure is in and around one and a half percent. At some point, we'll want to come back to that, but we're not ready. One of the things that we always talk about is the volatility of low vol and, and how people are, whether, whether they're discriminating or not discriminating across that volatility axis. Right now, they don't really care. We're starting to see opportunities. We're starting to see low vol roll over. We're starting to see your bond proxies pull back. The, uh, the tactical opportunities opening up, but just not yet. We need to see people, uh, we see, need to see a little bit more optimism, a little bit more speculation. And at that point in time, we'll come back to it from a tactical, tactical point of view. But the issue that we have longer term is this space, whether it's some of the ETFs, some of the quant funds, um, and even some of the fundamental funds, um, are a lot more AUM is going into this space and the opportunities are less and less and the valuations are higher and higher. So it's not what it used to be um, from five or five plus years ago. So if you boil it all down to a headline, uh, you're looking at an S&P 500 target year-end 2020 of 33.88, about a 6% gain. I always like to ask sort of what uh, your confidence level is in that. And more importantly, you know, uh, everyone sort of has uh, upside surprise in mind and a downside surprise. Which which risk is is greater, an upside or a downside to that? Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <Our question>. Wow! <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so a, a couple of things there, because because you asked and said said a lot. Um, one of the things we have the most confidence in, and one of the things that we expect to see next year is we expect to see a lot more spikes in volatility, a lot more trading opportunities open up, opening up. The buy and hold, I don't think, is going to your, be your friend next year. And so ultimately, we think we get to some sort of mid-single digit return. But by the end of the year, you're going to need a drink because it's, <laughs> it's going to be a long road to get there. It's yeah. going to be a long road. And there's going to be times where people say, where we hear the R word again, where we hear recession. Um, switching gears a little bit, what worries us most is we don't think the volatility in, in the rates market is over at this point in time. And we can make an equally plausible issue that rates go too high as well as too low. And so that continues to trouble us, yeah. if you will. And, yeah. and it's just really difficult to handicap because you, you can't go Especially when trying ways. to figure out the winners and losers. You know, the, the index might be somewhat steady, but the, the winners and losers inside will be flipping and flopping around it, right. possibly. And, and then the other thing is that getting back to liquidity. At some point, the Fed will stop growing their balance sheet. We have saw that in at the end of 2014. 2015 was not a great year. And so it looks like they've been helping to push price, push risk, 
yes, trading tariff has done its fair share. But if you look at what's happened to the shape of the yield curve, interest rates, and risk product, it's been very aggressive as the Fed has put more liquidity into the system. Is that balance sheet risk sort of, uh, I would imagine that could be front-loaded towards the beginning of the year just because, right. you know, they want to get past the turn in the repo market? And- I think I think that's fair, and I think that's uh, right as well. But the one thing that when I ask people, so where do you think they end? How big a balance sheet do you think they get to? And right now it looks like they're going to add about a half a trillion dollars, but that might not be the end of it. That's what we think, yeah. but it's not clear. They're not saying, okay, that's... 100%, that's the level we're done here. You could see more. Um, hopefully, they end and, and we can have the capital markets start to stand on their own, but we'll see. So within your risks that you lay out in your 2020 outlook, the first on there is interest rate risks and volatility. At what point would it be an issue? Say we actually do see 10-year yields moving to the upside. At what point do you think would actually cause an issue then for the stock market? One of the things that we think about, yes, how will they get um, up, say, 50, let's just choose a, a figure, up 50 basis points. And, and taking a step back, too, if you look at the equity market in 2019, we could say majority or more than majority of the return was because of multiple expansion, and that multiple expansion was predicated on lower rates and tighter credit spreads. And so at some point, and maybe it's, it, it depends on the level and it t- depends on the speed. If it happens very quickly, mm-hmm. then, then the level's lower. If it takes time, then it's probably 50 basis points or, or maybe more, my guess. But one of the things we keep looking at and one of the things that we know is that when we talk to investors, when we look at the capital markets over in Europe, people now realize or believe that negative interest rates are a failed experiment. And if all of a sudden German tenures are north of 0%, which is a little difficult to see at this point in time, you would expect some sort of backup in, in U.S. rates. And then the question is, you don't really know where the top is. Just like in August, I had a number of, of race players who were telling me the tenure is going to be at 3%. Now they're th- saying three basis points. And, and the swings that you're going to have are going to be quite great. And, and so it's going to play with multiples. It, so to see these credit spreads at, at these razor-thin margins, yeah. um, what would it take for them to, to finally widen out again? Would it be sort of a credit event that would cause it, do you think, or some right. sort of deterioration in the, in the data? I mean, what, what, what should we look out for there? Um, so our credit team does think we, you're going to see about a 20 basis point widening in IG spreads. Yeah. Uh, partly that they say some of that is technical, some of that is just things are priced exceptionally well. We'll have some idiosyncratic risk that may push things out. And, and it looks like we've just peaked on fundamentals at this point in time. We're not negative on the economy next year, but the economy is not going to be great. We're three yards in a cloud of dust, right? If choose, choose a number, you're at two and change plus or minus 25 basis points for a long, long time. We're a low growth but robust environment, and, and we have to get comfortable with that. Yeah, so a, a, a trade deal, even a phase eight or nine, whatever <laughs> we finally get to, it doesn't get us past sort of trend GDP growth then. No, not really. It, it takes a ton to get to 3%, as we saw with tax reform. We, we got there for a period of time, but we can't get there for a sustained period of time. We have bridges, we have roads, we have infrastructure and telecom, we have an aging population, we have little to no uh, population growth. We're a mature economy. Yeah. You don't grow at 3% for, an extent, for a sustained period of time. 
I think we'd all hope that we don't have to get to a phase eight or nine. <laughs> uh, we're still dealing with that. How many, uh, phase, yeah. how many phases are there? Uh, I, don't think sure. I don't think we've been told yet, so maybe eight or nine is Navarro possible. talked about the nine deadly <laughs> yeah. sins or something. Like that, so In I, our I, worst yeah. nightmares. Yeah. If we get to phase one and a half next year, I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all will. I think we all will. It's just a phase, sir. It's just a phase. <laughs> I say to my daughters. Yeah, they're going through their phases. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being our first guest for 2020. Uh, happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.